passage this morning comes from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 8, verses 22 through 23, excuse me, 23 through 25. Uh, Before I read our passage, let us go to the Lord in prayer that he would bless the reading and preaching of his word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you again this morning in the name of Christ. As we come to your word, we ask that you would give us the same Holy Spirit that you gave St. Luke. Uh, that these words would, as you have inspired them for our infallible instruction, would indeed infallibly instruct us, that they would show us and reveal unto us the glories of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask, your Lord, that this word would not return unto you void, nor would it bring forth judgment and condemnation, but rather to us this morning, that it would be a word of mercy, that it would call us from the world unto yourself, and that your word might produce the fruit of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ in obedience to his will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. Now it came to pass on a certain day, that he went into a ship with his disciples, and he said unto them, Let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And there came down a storm of wind on the lake, and they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased. And there was a calm. And he said unto them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and wondered, saying one to another, What manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and the water, and they obey him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever. And his people said, Amen. We come to a section of the Gospel of Luke a section that we find uh, paralleled in all the synoptic Gospels, in both Matthew and Mark, and they're given in the same general order. Uh, we have the quelling of the waves and the wind uh, in, on the lake, or Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee. We have then following the uh, gathering demoniacs and the casting out of legion. We have following that Jairus' daughter, uh, together with the woman with the issue of blood, uh, Jairus' daughter being, back from, uh, being brought back from the dead, and the incurable disease cured. And these three are not always given just by themselves. Matthew uh, interferes other things that happened there. Uh, but this is clearly a section of the apostolic tradition, the teaching, the catechizing of the church about the events of Jesus' life and ministry that were revealing, and particularly here, the connected thing that uh, brings these uh, things together is the glimpse and the revelation of an authority that goes beyond prophet or priest or even king. Uh, 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 an authority that goes beyond the human ministers of the Lord God and reveals something about Jesus Christ uh, that was to them astounding and the foundation of the church's gospel. 
that in Christ, God was reconciling the world unto himself. That what we encounter in Jesus Christ, who we see in him, is none other than God Almighty. Now, these things we tend to miss. Uh, we look at uh, the, the quelling of the waves and the sea, and uh, we read over it. It's nice, it's wonderful, it is quaint. Uh, in Matthew and, uh, well, excuse me, in Mark's Gospel, uh, we have the, uh, the beautiful picture of Christ also saying, we have the very words of Christ, peace be still. And we uh, are who believe in Christ. It's not that we doubt this sort of thing. It was popular in times past to sort of explain away the miracles of Christ, uh, not out of a lack of faith, but in the sense that these needed to be made uh, believable. But in the very act of making these things believable, uh, saying that this just happened to be the case, that Jesus knew that this was this a swift storm that would calm itself, uh, we actually rob the, the, uh, the event of its intended message. This is a revelation of God. This is one of those places most pointedly that show us that, that Jesus Christ is God. That when, as he says to Philip, he has seen me, has seen the Father also. Uh, we miss this because we are not very familiar with our Bibles, uh, with the Old Testament. We don't live in the ancient world. We are not Hebrews, and we're not even descended from Hebrews. We're descended from a people that uh, went out to sea and went out on ships and spent a great deal of time there, and it ha- harbors no great fear, but just ponder for a second, every time the Hebrews went out and met the ocean, it was bad. When God was delivering the Hebrews from the Egyptians, how did he do it? He didn't send them over the sea. He backed it up. He said, get out. And they went over on dry land. It's funny. In, the, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talks about the baptism of Israel in the Red Sea. It is uh, very clearly not an immersion. They are baptized dry. When they do go to sea, it works bad for them. Jonah, how is he going to escape God? I'm going to escape God on the sea. He gets swallowed by a whale and upchucked on the Sea of Nineveh. Paul. Paul goes to sea in the New Testament. What happens to Paul on the ocean? The boat gets lost and he's washed up on the island of Malta. The sea is a dangerous thing. And we tend not to think about it as such. Uh, I would say even our forefathers that were seamen uh, were very much aware of the dangers of the sea. Uh, It is... uh, if you look at English literature, uh, the, the, the sailor is the most superstitious of the people. And one of the reasons why the sailor is the most superstitious of the jobs of mankind is he is the one that's closest to the mighty primordial powers of God. That mankind has the least 
conquest over. We have gone into space, and we do sail upon the sea. Uh, But it's still a dangerous place and a place of mystery. And here is Christ, sleeping casually through a storm, and at the distress of sailors who knew their condition upon the Sea of Galilee, was able to say, peace, be still, to rebuke the waves and the wind, and there was a calm. We ought not to read over these words without a pause in verse 25. And they, being afraid, wondered, saying one to another, What manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds of the water, and they obey him. They were coming to a conclusion that this isn't a manner of man at all. I mean, obviously he is a man. and The Christian faith, bedrock, foundation that Christ is man, but he is also God, and he is a man like none other, uh, that he is a man in which uh, God, ha- God is, uh, the eternal Son. Uh, here is revealed Christ's divine authority. Verse 24, he arose, he rebuked the raging of the water and the wind And they ceased, and there was a calm. If you look back, turn to the very front of your Bibles. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And it immediately goes to look at the conditions of this creation. And what is said there, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, And the Spirit of God, or the wind of God, moved upon the face of the waters. That the primordial powers that were in, when God first created the world, He began with just raw power. Formless power. Chaotic power. That's what formless and void mean. (laughs) That... The wild potentialities. And what were they? They were waves and they were wind. This is going right back to the very beginning. There is a reason why in the, uh, the picture of Christ's authority, it progresses first from the waves and the sea, then to the legion of devils, and then to... Uh, over the miseries of man, death and disease. Because right there with creation, right there at the creation of all things, right there contemporaneously with the devils themselves, who were presumably at this time angels, was the waves and the wind. And who but God alone can rule over them? This is one of the constant refrains of Scripture. You get it all throughout the Psalms, uh, but you, you get it in the Proverbs too, the wisdom literature. Uh, look at Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Of course, the New Testament is going to point to the one who also fulfills all these other things. Who hath gathered the winds in his fist? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? 
who hath established all the ends of the earth. What is his name, and what is his son's name, if you can tell him? I mean, we can. But the ancient world couldn't. You know, even the gods of the ancient world uh, were not themselves the personifications of the sea and the wind, but conquerors of it, or those that fought against it, or those that held them off. But there was always a recognition that they themselves uh, were subject to something higher and mightier. In Job chapter 38, verses 3 through 11, Gird up now thy loins like a man, the Lord addressing Job. For I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Where wast thou when I laid the foundation of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measure thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut up the sea with doors when it broke forth as if he had issued out of the womb? When I made the clouds, the garments thereof, and the thick darkness a swaddling band for it, and broke it up for my decreed place and set bars and doors and said, Hitherto shall thou come, but no farther, and there shall thy pride ways be stayed. And the Lord is showing Job the incomprehensible mysteries of who he is. When he is asking Job to look to the, the bare mysteries of the things around him and then contemplate the mysteries of misery itself, he first calls him to consider the waves and the winds of the sea. His sovereignty over them is the patent of his divinity, of his Godhead. It's not how he earned his Godhead, but how he shows his Godhead, how he proves it. Uh, If you look at Psalm 137, or excuse me, 135, uh, verses 6 and 7, Whatsoever the Lord please, that he did in heaven, and in earth, in the seas, and all deep places. He calls the vapors to ascend from the uh, ends of the earth, He maketh lightnings for the rain. He bringeth the wind out of his treasuries. That is the focus of the wind. We were called to worship this morning by Psalm 93. And what is Psalm 93? But a a reflection and a building up of God's majesty and power over the most primordial chaotic thing that there is, the sea. This is how the psalmist establishes that holiness becomes the house of, a God, house of God. Because he reigns and he alone is clothed with majesty. He alone is clothed with strength and has girded himself with power. He alone has established the world that it cannot be moved. And how do we know it? Because that throne is established above the floods that lift up. The floods lift up their voice and the waves crash against all that is. But the Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, yea, mightier than the waves of the sea. Later, as we're going through the Gospel of St. Luke, we will look at Jesus walking on water. It's another miracle that uh, modern men tend to scoff at. Oh, why on earth would God come and ma- as man into the world to save sinners and do something as trivial or as carnival-like as walking on the water? He does that 
to show forth clearly. Because walking on water is not something that even the the prophets do. It is something that God himself does to ride the waves of the storm. All the language of Old Testament praise addresses the one and only one who sits enthroned above the heavens and the seas, who sits upon the the raging waves, whose, whose power is such that he is sublime upon the storm. It is why uh, though many uh, non-believing scholars that want to reduce all of Scripture into just common paganism uh, like to say that the Jehovah Lord of the Bible is basically a storm god. The truth in that is the sense that the Lord God of Scriptures is the master and the controller of the storm. But he is of everything else as well. He is that and so much more. Uh, and, and this is a picture that showed to the disciples. Remember, at least four of them are themselves sailors and fishermen. That this is one that is not like John the Baptist simply. Not even like Moses with his command of the Red Sea. Moses lifted up the staff, the symbol of his derived authority from God. The Lord uh, was there in the pillar of the cloud and the pillar of the fire. The Lord was there to back up what Moses was doing. He was establishing Moses' authority. But Christ doesn't invoke his father here. Christ is in his own authority. Christ moved upon the waves of the sea and brooded over them in the morning of creation. And Christ here simply gets up, sees the distress of his disciples, and says, peace, be still. And it is a fearful authority to command. His disciples feared They had come into the presence of God. When the Old Testament saints come into the presence of the angel, they fear. When the shepherds saw the angels in the sky, the host of heaven, they feared. Uh, There's many reasons for it, but they come into a power they cannot resist. They come into the power that they are unworthy to be in the presence of, and they fear. Psalm 5, verses Psalm 65, verses 5 through 7. By terrible things in righteousness wilt thou enter us, O God of our salvation, who art, confident, who art the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of them that are far off upon the sea, which by his strength setteth fast the mountains, being girded with power, which stilleth the noise of the seas, the noise of the ways, and the tumult of the people. When the Lord does his work, it is an answer of the Lord that is terrible. Terrible in the sense of terrifying. That you have come into the presence of one that, yes, may be on your side. But is not at your command. When Jonah was thrown into the sea and the waves stopped, these pagan men, it is said, feared the Lord exceedingly. And offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. 
They were delivered by throwing a Hebrew prophet into the sea. But they recognized that they were dealing not with just a prophet, but a prophet of the true God, and that they were in the presence of the Almighty. When his disciples wake him up in great distress and worry and anxiety, Master, Master, we perish, we are destroyed. They were going to him for aid and help, as they ought to have done. But the aid, the answer came to them, was terrifying in its majesty and power. And we often just flip through this and think of it as a very sentimental thing, that Jesus quelled the storm and the sea. It was the one of the, if not the clearest marks of Godhead that Jesus worked in his ministry here on earth. But the other part of this is his rebuke. Where is thy faith? Where is your faith? Verse 25. Where is thy faith? Why are you coming to me in this great distress? Master, master, we perish. Verse 24. Let's be careful about the way we understand this. They were in a deadly situation. Uh, As the Holy Spirit inspires Luke to write, they were in jeopardy. They were shipping water. They were being tossed. They knew the situation that they were in. They were sailors. They knew that this was not the kind of storm that they wanted to be in. And they knew that this is the type of storm that they could not survive. And they go to Jesus. Isn't that not itself faith? They knew in whom to trust. They knew their danger and their helplessness. And they knew that Christ was the place to go. An earnest and passionate prayer in the time of danger is absolutely proper. If we were going to say that they erred in going to Jesus in great distress, then we would have to take out almost all of the prayers of the Psalms and almost all of the prayers of the apostles and the prophets themselves. Everything given to us as a model of prayer. So it's not their faith wasn't wrong in the sense of its direction. The fact that they trusted Jesus in some form or fashion, even if incoherently, uh, was to be commended. But what Jesus is rebuking is not where they put their trust, but, but the manner of their trust. And the, uh, the, if, if we want to, to, to quantify it, the, the smallness of their trust. They did have faith, but it showed itself in their, their firm conviction that they were perishing, that they had a small and tottering faith. Recently, in the parable of the sower, verse 13, he talks about the, the seed sown on the rock or the hard place, that it is rootless, that it cannot endure tribulation and trouble and temptation that it comes up and springs forth with joy, but as soon as trial comes, as soon as the sun and heat of temptation or tribulation come down, it withers away and bears no fruit. His disciples were showing themselves to be hard ground, shallow, rootless hearers. 
They were agitated that he seemed to be careless and asleep. Psalm 121, 3 and 4 says, The Lord that keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Jesus was asleep, but even in their uh, newfound faith, they knew he was uh, the Son of Man, at least. The Son of God, the Messiah, the one who came to bring the Lord's kingdom. And that, and that king uh, doesn't slumber nor sleep. And is he not about his father's business? And are they not going across the sea to spread forth the gospel of the kingdom of Christ? And are they not in his hands? And even if they perish, is it not under the sovereignty of God who sits upon the storms of the sea? They trusted even incoherently in the power of Christ. Certainly the power of God. But they didn't trust in his goodwill to them and his goodness and his mercy. And that is what they were distressed about. To be distressed in their condition was nothing uh, sort of ordinary, natural, and proper. To conclude that they were perishing, though, Showed a weakness of faith. Now Christ doesn't rebuke them to scold them. He rebukes them to lead them, as he does, to contemplate just that, that weak faith that recognized they needed to turn to Christ, what that truly meant. To look at what Jesus note, he rebukes them, then um, well, he does his mercy, then he rebukes them, that they are to, to ponder with the end in view, already in view that he is merciful and mighty. So the rebuke is not one of, of shaming them, but one of drawing out the full ramifications of their faith, that it might not be shallow ground hearing. And the lessons to us, what we should be reading in this passage, oh, that we should come to firm conclusion. And as we are all gathered here in the church of Jesus Christ, and as we are all gathered around the gospel of Jesus Christ, and as we all here profess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, this shouldn't be controversial, but even we need to hear. Even we have to remember the constant refrain in the Old Testament and the New Testament is remember. Keep it ever before us. It's written here upon the table. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember who I am. In Jesus, you find God himself. He is the express image of the Father. He is the eternal word. He is the almighty God. That means... That his authority over the wind and the waves is also authority over you. And when we hear his word, it's important that we take heed, as we've seen in the paragraphs above, how we hear this word. That we trust it. That his will revealed to us is not his opinion. It's not his advice to us. 
but it is the authority of the one in whose hand is life and peace. But also death and destruction. In whose hand is order and chaos. As he says in Isaiah 45, 7, I create the good and I create the evil. Or we might translate it better, I bring weal and I bring woe. Ought we not to fear is not the beginning of wisdom when we come into contact with the eternal word of God to fear. Not in distress like the disciples, master, master, we perish, but with fear and wonder what manner of word is this? What manner of man who is amongst us, who is both God, who commands us not to our hurt, not to put a heavy burden upon us, but to bring us life and peace. In him alone, we can fully trust. Even in him, even the powers that is most close to us in distress, death itself, If you are in Christ, even in death, you will not perish. Isn't that the resurrection? Isn't that the, the promise that we have new life in Christ and that life cannot be taken away from us? So then if God be for us, as Paul says in Romans 8, who can be against us? The wind? No. The waves? No. The devil, no. Death, no. Then also, the sin that we struggle with, no. The shame or the embarrassment that, that is pressed upon us by temptation of the devil when we seek to do Christ's will, no. These things God gives in his love at his time, and we can trust him and follow him. And can you resist the one that even the winds and the waves must submit to? Are you more powerful than the wind and the wave? Do you have greater capacity to rage against the Lord God Almighty? No. Christ Jesus is the one who quells all power. Your good, my good, our life, our peace is found in the one who makes peace everywhere he goes. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you in the name of Christ Jesus. And we ask, dear Lord, that we would see in him the fullness of your glory, that we would hear his word, take heed to it and do it, that we would trust and find the life of your word growing through us, that we would see the vanity of life uh, fade away, that we would live unto you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.